Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So we are just on a week into the Rugby World Cup of 2023. The Vuelta de España is happening at the moment. And goodness me, there are some emotions boiling over in that event. And there's been some interesting doping cases happening in the world of uh, sports, uh, which are a bit of a shock to the system. So lots to talk about in this episode of the Science of Sport podcast. And uh, fresh from his first trip to France, where he was... Uh, looking at the various medical facilities and all the other bits and pieces around the safety of players. Professor Rostock is here in our studios. I know that you're going back to the Rugby World Cup in a couple of weeks' time yep. for the second half of it. Uh, but uh, you survived the heat of Europe for a couple of days. You were there yes, for a was, week. It was unpleasant, though. Eh? I had sympathy for you from Budapest. <laughs> it was, Paris was, was a hot place. Paris was not below 30 any day, any time of any of the days I was there. Yeah. And even at the first game that kicked off that Friday night when France played New Zealand, it it must have been, I think it, we looked actually, it was 32 or so at kickoff with sort of 65% humidity. And then it got slightly cooler, but the humidity went up. So it would have felt as unpleasant. And everyone, we were sitting near the dugouts, quite low down, and the New Zealand physios were, I mean, they looked like they jumped into a swimming pool. Mm. And that's just running on, on and off the field every third or fourth minute, you know? Mm. Are there, are, there any, unpleasant. are there any protocols in place for the heat in France? Yeah. Because it's 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 kind of a bit unseasonal. Yeah, that, it is. That they're, surpri- they're surprised by it, and apparently it's breaking. So the mm. the heat enough, the heat wave has finally snapped. So as of this next round of matches starting tonight, is it? I think. I think so. Lost track. Uh, they'll no longer institute the protocol, but the protocol is basically at the discretion of the match day doctor or. When the heat stress index exceeds 150, and they've got in the document, you can look, it's basically at 30 degrees and 60% humidity, or slightly cooler with higher humidity, or slightly hotter with lower humidity. So there's a combination of temperature and humidity that kick in a protocol that allows for an interruption at around 20 minutes of each half, yep. when there's a two-minute break for water. So that's what they do. Which we saw in this last weekend. All, yeah. all the, it, was, yeah, it was basically a world rugby decision that was taken on the th- Wednesday or Thursday before, that all the games would have that policy in place just to get it out the way, you know, and just say, listen, every game this weekend, heat policy. Is there a heat policy which could potentially cancel a game? Could it get so hot that it would be unsafe for players? Never happened that a game's been cancelled. I mean, in theory, in theory, it can get hot enough and challenging enough that it limits performance mm. and theoretically creates a risk. In practice... Those risks are very rarely realized, even in a marathon. You know, you hardly ever see it. You'll see thousands of athletes finish even on hot days before you see one with a serious issue. In mm-hmm. rugby, even less so because the game is so stop-start. So whilst you can get very hot, you can also always stop. You yeah. know, it's not a continuous task. So, but, but then again, they're big guys. 
you know, you're talking 100 plus kilograms charging around. And if it's a sunny day as well for 40 minutes, that that does have a significant heat, heat stress. But the thing is the player would, would fail before they were in serious medical harm. Mm. Unless they were carrying some underlying pathology. And incidentally, this is not unique to rugby. This came up in the tennis in New York, US Open, where Dan- Daniel Medvedev that said after a semi-final, quarter-final, because then he beat Alcaraz in the semi, he said something along the lines of someone will die and then you'll see. The thing is, the elite athlete's the least likely person in that stadium to yeah. die. Like even though they're the ones running around chasing a ball. <laughs> the <It's laughs> the risk actually the exists in the stadium the watching. The risk exists in the stands. And so yes. I actually <laughs> actually replied to some patrons who brought it up and said, you might, you know, you might not be wrong, but it's not going to be on the court. It's going to be in the stands. <laughs> exactly. And you laugh about it, but it's some it's someone who's 60, 65, maybe a smoker, obese, unfit, mm. who's just not doesn't have the heat loss capacity that an athlete has. Totally. So they, their conditioning protects them. And yeah. so does the fact that they can stop anytime they want. And then even if they went down or they went, and, and there were a couple, by the way, like athlete players in opening weekend who after the match weren't in the great, greatest shape ever, headaches, nausea, dizziness, blood pressure problems. This is, I think, normal, but they can be treated and they're covered really quickly. So it's not, it's not something you worry about massively. As far as, Cancelling games, guys. Rugby's always been a winter sport. So no one's ever really thought <laughs> not about anymore. it anymore. Yeah. But now it's not because even South Africa playing in, in the uh, URC, we, we got games over December. Yeah. Now you imagine a game up in Johannesburg on a 36 degree. Okay, luckily it's not humid, but mm. maybe it's something to start looking at. Well, they have to almost rename the kit now because it's always rugby jerseys and jerseys. Yes. They're not jerseys <laughs> anymore now, but they were That's true. 20 years ago. They were actual jerseys. Now they're just basically mm. lycra tops. Speaking of they? interesting, I mean, again, as I just said, we were standing, we were sitting watching the game behind the dugout. Those New Zealand jerseys were just soaking up water. Those things must have weighed like two kilograms more than when they were dry. Good point. And I'm just saying, I watched, um, I watched Djokovic. That's why they're doing so badly. I watched Djokovic playing against... Another Serb or Croatian in around four or something, this was on the flight over, a guy called Gojo, who every point, whether the point was one shot or 16 or 30, had to go and tile off and dry because he was sweating so profusely. And his shirt was literally dripping water onto the court. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I thought the materials were a little bit better these days. I don't know these kit suppliers. Because I didn't notice the same thing from the French kits and certainly from us in Scotland in that game. It wasn't, it wasn't the same look. So I don't know whether all these rugby jerseys are made for heat either. I was actually watching a squash tournament happening in Paris a couple of weeks ago where the world's best players were playing and they were literally, after every single point, there was a guy with a squidgy coming yeah. on and wiping the court. Literally every point yeah, because of the amount of um, of perspiration going yeah, on the, the floor. Problem with that squash is, is like that. The problem they got is no circulation of air, right? Yeah. Similar to what you described in Budapest. And Paris, because this is the Olympic Stadium, by the way, so I got a little foretaste of what 2024 oh, would be like. Nice. And there was very little wind in that stadium as well. You know, it's pretty sealed up. <laughs> so that'll be in July where you would expect warm conditions. But if it's if they have an unseasonably warm July, the marathon will be, I mean, it'll be brutal. Mm. We talked about like a couple of years ago, the, 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 the things like uh, the World Championships in Doha being hot. Actually, relatively speaking, we talked about Budapest being hotter than Doha mm. and potentially Olympic Games next year could be hotter than these yeah. Middle East countries purely because of, you know, Climate change, if you want to believe that, but certainly yeah. temperatures are hotter. So, yeah, anyway, I think it'll break. And when by the end of the tournament, it'll look like a different hemisphere mm. because it'll be, I think, 
end of October will be quite cool and maybe a bit of rain forecast. Mm. We'll see. Anyway, the heat's the least of the tournament's challenges, mm. I reckon. <laughs> well, let's just di- just dip in very briefly to some of the news that's been in the headlines the yeah. last couple of weeks. And uh, two fairly big names in terms of doping cases in tennis and, yeah, and, uh, and football. I mean, these are these are big names, these guys. And, and funny, and given, that, given that in the last few weeks we've said how few sports other than cycling, well, not even cycling, actually, other than track and field, catch dopers. And now we get two mm. from one from football and one from tennis. Mm. So that's uh, certainly interesting, yeah. So the first one was Paul Pogba and the second, Simona Halep. And these came to my attention. Well, I would have seen them anyway, but uh, the patrons. Paul Pogba, the Juventus striker, is he? Uh, midfielder. Midfielder. French French national World Cup winner yep. previously. And, mm. uh, and he's played around. He's been Man United, Juventus, and so on. Done, he's done the circuit. Failed the test for metabolites of testosterone, but very importantly, exogenous testosterone. So obviously what's happened here is that you they've tested... You explain what that means. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> they've tested the testosterone and they've identified that it's not from his own body. Because, you know, the challenge with a lot of these drugs is you make it yourself. Yeah. And so you will find metabolites of it. So it's not necessarily the Metabolites level, being the, 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 the breakdown products. Right. Yeah, so they look for testosterone plus a few of its, call them family members, like derivatives, mm. descendants, mm. <laughs> maybe the better word. And so they find these and then, and then they do, the, because when it's, when it's endogenous produced from within, endo inside, generated, just genus, then it has a different signature molecularly compared to when it's exogenous. Mm. And that's what they found in Pogba's case. And so he has to account for how an external source of testosterone found its way into his urine sample. And as of this morning, I saw that he said that he got it from a doctor, a friend of his in Miami, who provided the supplement. One journalist I spoke to said that it said on the supplement may contain testosterone. If that's the case, he's done. Because mm. now you can't even claim ignorance. You, you mm. literally, all you had to do was read. But even if it didn't, he still has a responsibility. You know, we've discussed many times, and even when you were covering track and field, you know strict liability, right? Yeah. And that's the concept is the athlete is liable mm. for the substance in their body, irrespective of how it got there. What he could do is if he can make the case for it, he could probably justify that it got there inadvertently, and he's not guilty of intentional but inadvertent doping. And then depending on whether he could show how many steps he took to avoid that situation, he could be let off. There was a case a decade ago of some South African rugby players who failed a test, but they were able to show that the supplement was the source and, and this is the key, bold underline the and, and that the supplement had been provided to them with all the necessary best practice assurances that it wouldn't be contaminated. And so then you could say, well, what more could the athlete have done? But in other situations, the athlete just takes it and says, I assumed. Well, assumption equals risk. Mm. And so Pogba would have a very high hurdle to clear. be interesting to see whether there's an appetite to slap him with the four years, which is what it should be if he can't clear that that barrier. Mm. But again, sorry, just the last word on that is, Every single time an athlete fails a drug test now, you can basically write their statement for them. You know what I mean? You don't even need to wait. You can actually say, I've never advertently or intentionally doped. I'm strictly against doping. This can only be the result of a contaminated supplement. I'm fuming. Can you see the smoke coming out of my ears? I'm going to sue the supplement company and prove my innocence. And yes. it never happens. Yeah, exactly. Or add in, I had a burrito. Or something, or something like, that. like that. But it's never. It's the eggs. It's the steak. It's the burrito. It's the supplement. It's never, ever. And so 
So it's hard to know because contamination is possible. And it could well be that Paul Pogba's friend gave him a supplement that contained testosterone inadvertently. Yeah. But he's still guilty of doping. And, and that's the best case scenario you can make. The more, the more likely worst case scenario is that he, he's getting a little bit older. He's losing some of that speed and power. Maybe he's trying to get back from injury to the levels he was before. And he needs a little bit of artificial help in that regard. That, that would be why the athlete would use it, incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> so the other one was um, which, uh, yeah, which is a really interesting one. Yeah, Simona yeah. Halep. I mean, she's been basically banned uh, and for two doping offences, essentially for a positive test in yes. 2022, and also for a, a, a whereabouts. Uh, no, issue. for athlete biological passport. Oh, sorry, a biological yeah. passport. But yes, I knew there was two. So this, yeah, so this is a really interesting one, and again. The claim is contamination of a supplement, mm. right? So she's, she's very vehemently denying this, of and course. And she's saying she's going to go to CAS. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, when yeah. that happens, it'll, it'll A, drag this out, but it'll produce more documentation. The, the statement that was released this week by the International Tennis Integrity Agency, let me just, yeah, ITIA, mm. said, how <laughs> about this? The independent tribunal received 8,000 pages of scientific and other evidence from the player and the ITA. So that's what they had to sift through. Crikey. So, so this is clearly not going to be a simple one. But basically what happens is August 2022, so just over a year ago, she fails a test. This is literally, we found a banned substance in your urine. And that banned substance is called Roxadustat. Mm-hmm. Do you remember in our Altitude podcast, I told you the story of how Altitude drives red blood cells by switching on genes. That's what this Roxadustat does as well. Uh-huh. And so it's a drug that's actually legally used to treat anemia in sick people by stimulating the formation of more red blood cells so that they can function normally so and get healthy. So it's kind of like an EPO. It's like an EPO, mm. except it's acting via its different pathway. An EPO mm. straight to the bone marrow, bang, out they go. Well, also via genes. So this is more like jabbing the thing to make more red blood cells was EPO is actually making the red blood cells. Yeah, EPO is the signal to make more red blood cells. Right. And it'll carry that signal via the same transcription factors as mm. this as this would. So in actual fact, it is. It's an EPO equivalent. Mm. It's a blood doping aid. So she fails the test for that reason. And they issue her with a preliminary suspension. And then what happens is they subsequently, and this is where it gets confusing. And this is what a lot of those 8,000 pages will go towards is they look at her athlete biological passport, and I'm going to read to you from this decision. Use of a prohibited substance or method during 2022, based on collection and analysis of 51 blood samples provided by the player as part of the ABP program. Now, first thing is 51 samples. I was amazed that they even test that many in the game, never mind in one person. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't think think tennis I didn't even know that tennis players had biological passports, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, but 51 samples. Mm. Okay, is that unusual? We're great to know. How often was uh, was Novak Djokovic tested? How yeah. often was uh, Igor Svantec tested? <laughs> yeah. Because maybe Halep was firmly under the microscope and they were targeting her like literally once or twice a week, right? Mm. But the problem now she's got is she's claimed contamination and contamination could explain the urine sample positive and it could explain an athlete biological passport abnormality if it was an isolated one. Because remember what this thing's gonna do, gonna cause red blood cells to go up. And so in the athlete biological passport, you'd see either a very sharp increase in young red blood cells, or if it's a little bit later on, you'd see a very big increase in hemoglobin levels and and red blood cell counts, yeah? Mm -hmm. The problem she's got and the way this is worded is it sounds like her athlete biological passport was abnormal for quite a while. 
And I have subsequently read that it was all over the place. And so now she's got to show not only that she took a contaminated supplement, but that she took it for a long time. Mm. And I don't know how you use Roxagistat, but my supplements is like, here's a month-long course, two-week course, one-week course, you know? If it's a medicine, which Roxagistat is, how does a medicine get contaminated? Yeah. Oh, sorry, how does, it, how does a medicine find its way into, into a supplement, into a supplement as opposed yeah. to testosterone? So yeah. Let me, let me at least go back. It's not a medicine. She's failed a test for a medicine. It's not quite the same as taking a protein powder that gets contaminated because it was made in some factory where they also use testosterone. Mm-hmm. This is a medical product. Mm-hmm. How does that find it? You know, so, so that's why, and it's interesting, they have, and it's again reading, the tribunal accepted Halep's argument that she had taken a contaminated supplement but determined the volume that the player ingested could not have resulted in the concentration of rexagistat found in the positive sample. So, so she's actually, she's actually right that she might have taken a contaminated supplement, but it's not enough to clear her. And I remember because the levels are too high. Because the level in the urine was way higher than mm. could possibly be explained by the level in the supplement. So she's been able to show them. Here's the supplement, and it contained the roxagistat, which in itself is a miracle. No, <laughs> like, just, that never happened. I was going to say that doesn't make sense. And many years ago now, probably seven or eight years ago, I was asked by a cyclist, local guy, not an elite guy, but he'd also failed a test, one of these sort of sub-vet guys to help him out in his defense because he'd failed a test for testosterone and he said it was the supplement. So I say, look, the only course of action is you've got to send that supplement off to a lab and show them that it contained the testosterone, thinking like, never, no chance, one in a trillion. <laughs> he comes back, he says, here's the lab report. Look, it had testosterone. Wow. And nearly fell over. So I said, I can't believe that. You're That's actually a- contaminated. But the same thing, the level in that supplement was like in the picogram range. Like now mm. you're talking like 10 to the, like that's more zeros than you can fit on a page. Yeah. So low, but the level in this guy's urine was unbelievably high. So either either he consumed like liters and liters of the supplement in one go, mm. or he was also <laughs> doping at the same time. So <laughs> these things are impossible to get to the bottom of. Because, I mean, the, the, the theorist in me suggests that maybe the athlete knows that there is sprinklings of the stuff in the product. Therefore, okay, I can prove that it's in the product. And I'm going to take the stuff over so and above maybe. that because maybe yeah. I get away with it. But I mean, the, yeah, logistics, the, lo- the logistics to do that must be, yeah, it's, the, the, the process so, to go through that must be unbelievable. So I don't know. And I mean, I, I listen, I've got better things to do than read 8,000s of pages yeah. of submission, even if they're available. But from what I gather is she's <laughs> adamantly claiming that it was a contaminated supplement. They have accepted that part but not that that part could explain her, t- mm. her sample. And then, and then she's also got the challenge that her biological passport has to, because a once-off once supplement ingestion is not going to trigger the passport. Mm. It's, it's, unless that amount in the supplement was enormous. But one, one small, that's like a once-off change in the biological passport. Mm. So you've got to be really unlucky that you tested at that very moment, first of all. That's a coincidence, <laughs> although with 51 tests, maybe. I was going to say, if you're suggesting that her biological <laughs> passport is up and down, that would be, right. would you say that that is consistent with maybe drug use? Prolonged use of yeah. something, as opposed yeah. to like... That's what you're suggesting. As opposed to like, here I am on the, I don't know, the 17th of March, mm. And my reticular site count is really high. Shit, why is that? Oh, well, that's because on the 13th of March, I took the supplement. And I can show you that the supplement was contaminated with a drug. 
which caused that. But now, if I'm also dodgy in February and April, and this is where I don't mm. know the details, so let me actually not stand here and say yeah. that this is what's happened. But that's the thing she'd have to show them, is that is that the supplement contamination in a narrow window could explain a biological passport in a broader window. And her claim is also that her passport was being seen by these experts because, remember, they're seen anonymously by three independent assessors. And she's saying that until the roxagistat failure, they didn't think it was abnormal. And then when the roxagistat failure came along, it biased their interpretation of the biological passport. And that's, a, that's an important and potentially legitimate claim. Yeah. So she might have some arguments here. But then again, so will the other side. And that's why they've banned her for four years. And now it'll go to Cass. And then... Who knows? I mean, there'll be another 8,000 pages. Yeah, she's certainly putting up a fight. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah interesting exactly. to see how that one ends up. Always interesting. Yeah. I mean, what amazes me about these doping cases is that every single time you see someone her high profile, there's always quite an elaborate process. You'd think, well, you know, there's so many precedents sent over the years in terms of how people use various different excuses. Mm-hmm. We've, we've made a bit of a joke about it earlier. But to some extent, I'm always amazed by there's, there's another way of explaining it. There's another way that they can sort of go, oh, well, it was in this and I yeah. took it that. And I, I mean, as you say, I've never, that scenario of the stuff, this medicine being in a supplement, that's implausible. Second of all, the fact that she's got way more of it into a system, <laughs> that's implausible. So exactly. the whole thing doesn't make sense to yeah, me right. as, as, and, as and an answer. As implausible as it is that a medicine's in a supplement, she's shown them that it was and they've believed her. Yeah. But not that enough of it was in there to explain it. And and again, I think the timing, and again, folks, if you're listening, like, I'm sorry, but like, I would lo- as much as I'd love to go and read up the specific details, <laughs> I haven't been able to and I probably it's won't until it, goes, until it goes to Cass. But... If she's failed that test in August, and it was August the 29th, that detail I do know, for Exagistat, she'd have to show that the supplement use and the abnormalities in the passport were in that same window of supplement use. If, if, if she's got abnormalities in the passport months before and months after, now she's got to show that the same supplement was contaminated with the same thing for a long, long time. I mean, mm. that's it. I mean, so the, every layer you add makes it more like one in a hundred. It's the same as the Houlihan thing, right? It's like... There's a one in a hundred chance of this. There's a one in a hundred chance of that. By the end of it, it's like one in a billion. Mm, exactly. So, anyway, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll yeah, see what Cass makes sure, of it. For sure. So, moving on to something a little bit, uh, well, not less controversial, but certainly more uh, interesting. If you look at all the cycling uh, social media channels over the last couple of days, it would have been- Not at all enjoyable. Not enjoyable. So those of you watching the the, the Tour of Spain, the Vuelta, um, there is a scenario where you've got the the three Yamba Visma riders, Jonas Vingard, who won the Vinagor, as we say, and we've got Primus Roglic, and of course we've got the man in the red jersey at the moment, Sepp Kuss, at the time of talking, um, who's been in the red jersey for just over a week. He is their traditional- uh, Domestique. He's the guy that's basically led Roglic and Vinegar to Grand Tour titles. He, by default, gets into the red jersey. But now we're seeing a scenario where he's been attacked by his own riders because those three riders, the top three on the GC, nobody's even close to them. And yesterday on stage 17, I think it was, Roglic wins, they break Kuss, and everybody's criticizing it, saying... They should let Chris win. He deserves it. He's done so mm. much for the team. He's this likable, smiley, kind of nice-looking guy, and everybody's now taking his side. And if you look at the forums, and I spent a bit of the morning looking at some of the reactions to on these various cycling Instagram posts, there is such passion for Sepp Chris yeah. to win this race. Mm. And there is so much hate towards Vinegar and, uh, and Roglic for attacking their own teammate where they should let him win. 
um, that it's 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 created this fervor. And in fact, it's the only thing you can talk about the Volta because the race is essentially over in terms of which team wins. But this controversy is, yeah. I think, ruining the image of Jumbo Visma actually in many ways. Yeah, and of those two riders, both of whom, you know, um, especially Roglic, when he won the Giro earlier this year, it was almost a revival story because he'd lost, remember, the Tour de France to Pagacha in 2021, I think it was. Yeah. I forget the years these yeah, days. Yeah, it was 2021. And that was in that time trial right at the end of the race. And this year he reversed that and he beats Thomas on that last time trial. And it was kind of like a redemption story. And Roglic, suddenly you listen to the podcasts and commentators talking about this guy's like almost, I wouldn't say it changed his image, but he, he becomes he becomes a, a positive hero. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now, <laughs> that's gone. And similarly with Wengel, who I think people would have maybe criticized for being a bit dull and boring, mm. very mechanical maybe. Mm. I, I quite like Wengel. I think his personality is more more my type than a Pogaccio or someone. But but same thing. Like What, what happened yesterday on the Angleroo was just very unpleasant to watch, mm. in my opinion. They didn't attack and him. They just rode away from him, actually. Yeah, and they didn't, didn't really attack and see, him. And they didn't need to. In the moment that happened, they could have... Because up to that point, on the Tourmalet, a few days before that, the day after the rest day, what they were doing had a degree of logic to it because they were trying to secure the podium. Mm-hmm. So when they sent Vinegar up the road, okay, fine, that, that puts Vinegar a minute or more ahead of Ayuso. Then even yesterday, sending Roglic up first, that makes sense because you're trying to pad the gap. You're trying to dislodge the guy in fourth, the biggest threat to your podium. Now he's gone. Ayuso was gone early. Yeah. And he was not coming back. You could see he was sliding backwards. Even his own teammates abandoned him. Mm. UAE is almost as bad as Yumbo in that regard. But then then no, there's no threat to him from anywhere other than his own teammates. And so then you're still right away from your own leader. And I, you see, if I was to play devil's advocate a little bit here, A, the sport's a business. Yeah. And this context was that Roglic could have become a double GC Tour winner in the same year. GC winner in the same year. Vinegar, maybe even more prestigiously, could have done the Tour of Walter double, consecutive Grand Tours. Jumbo would have become the first team to win three. No, that could happen with, even with Chris. But mm. those two guys, like they, they want to go down in history as being iconic, legendary Grand Tour riders. So it is a lot to ask them to give up a GC race in a business sense. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a business. And mm. also, remember we've had instances in the past and this I didn't I was reminded of this I was listening to the Escape Collective podcast and Ronan McLaughlin pointed this out he says we have when I say we the cycling community have in the past criticized when stronger riders wait for teammates and allow them to win it happened with Froome and Wiggins it happened with Lando and a teammate so we have seen the reverse criticism and so yesterday when Chris drops off that wheel and you can see that he's on the day, at least, maybe in the, whole, the whole tour, it's a bit different. On the day, he's the third strongest in their team. Yeah. If they wait, then history tells us we should criticize them for waiting. They didn't wait, so now we criticize them for not waiting. So I get that it's a bind, but it's still left a very funny taste in my mouth. I, d- I don't enjoy watching this. No, and I think there's that whole thing about the culture of the tour, about respecting the jersey that I think comes off in a lot of the social media that's going around this, is that people will say, well, Kuss was certainly not the strongest rider yesterday. He still holds the red jersey as as we speak right now, but he might change by the time you listen to this. But yeah. if he was a protected rider, potentially, in other words, 
I saw the stages yesterday. He was ahead of Roglic. He was often second man in the world. He was not getting the maximum protection from the rest of his teammates. Therefore, he's not. He's still the domestique in that role. If he was the protected rider from Vinegar and then maybe mm. he would be stronger in that situation. Instead of getting dropped, he's actually able to stay maybe, with them. Yeah, so again, the, the, I agree. Everything you say about the business. Mm. Somebody made a comment about the fact that if if he wins this, suddenly his salary bill will go up next year. Therefore, Yumbo, who are going to lose their sponsorship and I have to pay him some more money therefore mm. they might lose him do they want him to be a grand tour and it might cost them more money there's all sorts of conspiracy I, I theories heard, I heard the opposite theory is that if, if you win if you win a grand tour with an American rider it opens up a sponsorship market that might not otherwise have existed yeah, so in the search for a placement the owners of the team might be more inclined to support a new one and then you've got three athletes to leverage not just two Yeah. so there's yeah. that I, I don't know whether that holds any water or not <laughs> yeah I mean there's all sorts of these so, but I tell you what's what's not helping is Vinegar at the finish line, and apparently this morning said, "I really hope Seb wins red." <laughs> well, that's not that's not chance. That's kind of up to you, Jonas. That's like when you look over your shoulder and he's disappearing from your wheel. Mm. Like you can actually change the situation. Okay. Similarly, Roglic said in his interview, "Did you hear him say?" He said, mm. "Said to Seb, you must keep fighting." <laughs> and I, get, I have this image in my mind of like a guy is having his hands held behind his back and someone else is just taking shots at him mm. and saying to him, don't black out, keep yeah, fighting, yeah. stay conscious, stay with me. Like you go, he's only fighting because you're making him fight. Mm. Mm. If you didn't ride that intensity, you'd all, all you, you know the podium's secure now. Yeah, exactly. So really it's just a question of now who do you want to win this? And Roglic can't win this well too. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like, no matter what, there's no way Roglic is gaining more time on Vinegar. Mm. He's not strong enough. Mm. When Roglic attacks Mass, Lander, all those guys, they're on his wheel straight away. When mm. Vinegar attacks, there's a gap. So it's quite clear among those two who's too stronger. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Roglic has no claim to this title anymore, in my opinion. Mm. But Vinegar following Roglic is also like, what, what are you doing? If you want him to be in red at the end, mm. make it happen. It's simple. Mm. So stop saying things that contradict the actions that the whole world's just seen 20 minutes before. Mm. It's, just, it's bizarre. Well, Gary Thomas made a point about this, didn't he? He actually supported the fact that the best rider should win and that you can't gift a grand tour to a rider. That's that, yeah. that's that side of so, the coin which the, the, the people right. pro Vinegar and yeah. Roglic will say. Right. You can't gift a grand tour. Yeah, it's a little bit different from uh, gifting a stage win. Yes. Is it massively different from gifting a classics win? Maybe, yeah. maybe a little. Because remember, earlier this year there was a team that gifted a classics win to a support, support rider. They did, yes. Yeah, um, and that was which team? Uh, I, I know who you mean. It, um, it was, yes, it was Vote for Nights. Yes, and allowing Laporte to win. That's right. Yes, in yes, Ghent. Yes, 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 it's the same team. Mm. So, mm. now was that for Nights' decision? Yes. And, and, and that, that's it, a bigger it, sacrifice. Yeah, and it bring, well, yeah because yeah. Fanat didn't win a race all year, really. Mm. Like I mean, he won okay, won a couple of smaller ones. He won that E three Saxo thing. Mm. But but still, I mean, that, remember how he got criticised for that? Mm. Mm. 
there were people in cycling criticizing him, saying, no gifts. You can't give away a race of this prestige, even mm. if it is to a teammate. And other people defend mm. him, saying that win means as, and arguably it's true, that win means as much to Laporte mm. as a grantor would mean to Kuss, yeah. given their specializations. Yeah. Mm. And the reason I bring it up is two things. One is to point out that, <laughs> A, Yamba's been in this boat before, not, not previously, but like literally this year. And secondly, it seems to me like that decision might have been vote for art and Laporte on the road. And what's happening in Spain right now is a complete total lack of leadership, it seems, from Yamba, because they have to have a contingency in place to say, right, Primoz, you're going to go off today. The rest of you guys, we want Primoz to, to gap Ayuso. So don't drag anyone back. Mm. Let Primoz get a minute more on Ayuso so that we secure the podium. Jonas, you stay with Sepp. He wins this race. Done. Mm. But they're clearly not doing that. They, no. they, they've, it sounds like they've left it open to their guys to race. But then their own guys don't want to race, but they do. It's a, it's a complete mess. The optics are terrible. No, it's so bad. <laughs> That's and, the and problem. The, and the, the, the crazy thing is, okay, <laughs> this is, and I even want to say this at the start, even if it wasn't like this with Kuss and, and, and the two previous Grand Tour winners on the same team, the optics of three guys winning on the Tourmalet, one, two, three, three guys, first, second, third on the Angleroo, taking all three spots on the podium. Anyone who's watched cycling for two or three decades recognizes patterns, and that's a bad pattern mm. to be seeing. So that, that makes me uncomfortable to begin with. I don't like one team dominating. Oh, and no team has ever dominated to this extent. Yeah, so, so it's not just pattern recognition, it's pattern amplification. That's but again, the, the competitors, those that were seen as their competitors, Remco, he, yeah, been, he so had a bad fallen, day. I get that. Graham Thomas has been nowhere. Yeah, you know, and Pogac is not there. And, and, and Ayuso, I think people would have expected maybe to be a little mm. bit better in the mm. tour, in the Vuelta. So mm. I get that. But I'm just saying, like, even aside from all this drama, but I, I just think they had an opportunity to win three tours, first team, with three different riders, mm. to pay back to a guy who's served the team really well and who's not, let's face, he's not a, he's not a pancake at the back. No, he's, no, he's not just a guy and, that bails off out the climb. This is the other point Garen Thomas has said, is that they worked to put him in that position. He got into a break. He worked really hard in that 40-man break early on. They rode hard to get this position, and now they seem to have lost confidence that he's the guy to do it. Mm. Or Venegor and Roglic have just said, "No, hang on, we're pulling, the, we're playing the leadership card here, and we're gonna." Mm. But no matter what happens, they had a chance to ride a fairy tale, and it's becoming a horror story. Yeah, for them. And I get, and I, and I know it sounds like I'm playing both sides because I see both sides. I get that Roglic and Venegor are guys that want to establish legacies themselves, and you never know. Maybe Venegor never gets another chance to win a Vuelta. So saying like, why should mm. I sacrifice? But this you'd imagine prize? in a team in a team structure like Yamba Visma, that there there is a, a team instruction that the DS you'd the director sportif will say. So. I would think yes, well, now for it's sure. An easy instruction. So the, well, the instruction is either go a, for it and the like, best man wins, or it's to su- support and right protect. And, and that's a difficult instruction if there was a really good Ayuso, Evanapool or a Pogaccia mm. in this race. If there was someone there viably who could challenge Yumbo winning all three podium spots, that would be quite a tricky decision to make mm. because now you get an attack. Do you sacrifice the guy in first to let second chase the attacker? See, and that's that's what <laughs> I reckon that's mm. what Vinegar and, and Roglic were hoping was that Ayuso or Mass or Lander could throw in a big attack and gap Kuss mm. and then they would have license to go and yes. no one would question it. But it hasn't Perfect. happened no. because the third fo- strongest guy in the race is their teammate. Mm. And so <laughs> so really it's among themselves. But by this stage, it's an easy instruction, no? For, mm. for the director of Yamba. 
It's easy. You think so? You think? I just want to hear from him. That's I think right. he did do an interview on GCN, but I haven't watched that yet. Yeah, but, but then, we'll then he said, "Yeah, we couldn't hear on the radio what Sepp was saying to us." As that gap opened up on the Angler, I see you have seen that interview. Mm, yeah. I interviewed him on GCN. I watched mm. it, and everyone. I mean, even GCN. The guys were livid after that stage. Mm, mm. Dan Lloyd said it was uncomfortable, unpleasant watching. Sean Kelly, in his classic, like dry Irish, was. I mean, he was fuming. Oh, yeah. He said, give me the mic and I'll go ask the questions at the finish line because I want to know certain things and you're not asking the right questions. Just <laughs> oh, quite funny, actually, quite to watch. But for, as an enjoyment of this world tip, one out of ten. It's not fun at no, all. No, it's, it's no, like no. I've lost interest in it, yeah. to be honest with you. And I, love, I watch every single stage of every Grand Turvy and I've lost interest By the in time, that And the route, mate, the route was set up for great that race. Was, yeah. Even, and I was let me, excited let me, about this I'll offer you this hypothetical. Is if Sepp Kuz had never gotten into that break and the race had gone according to, I think, plan and mm. he been seventh or eight seven or eight minutes down mm. and it was Roglic and I still wouldn't have enjoyed it because I don't want to see teammates mm. racing each other no because A it's uncomfortable mm. watching and it's like B it's Formula it's, 1 stuff yeah and mm. it's like it's like it's exactly like that actually mm. I hadn't thought of that analogy it's mm. like when Serena Williams and Venus used to play tennis yes. against each other like and you used to watch that at Wimbledon and mm. the the atmosphere was not right mm. and it's the same watching teammates race it's not right no I remember earlier this year Strada Bianca Kopecky and Vollering Coming into the finish, you're like, oh, I don't want to see the sprint. Because I, mm. I don't know if I'm seeing something authentic here. Mm. No. I, I remember there was, no, there was a, some um, social media from the Yama Visma team and there was a celebration when they got all three top positions on the, on, the, on the stage early in the week. It was the Tourmalet, yeah. That, on the Tourmalet, that's right. Mm. And um, and they were they were talking about it. Was, you know, it was a great day for us and a perfectly successful day for us. And I kind of said, it's a great day for Yama Viz, but not a great day for the Volta. No, no, it's uh, awful. Uh, and then, yeah, cause, yeah. Was that the day that... Uh, was that the day Evanapur was like blown off? Like I think it was, right? Day, 20, yeah. 27 minutes that day. Yeah. Then the race is over. Does that he was he gone before even the oh, second last like climb? The, like the air was let out of the mm. balloon on that mm. day so badly. And I'd love to see what happened to him. Just that's as an a aside, because that's yeah, a yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, everything I've read about it, he just had a bad day. Well, what defines a bad day? Yeah, I don't know. You know, he wasn't <laughs> sick. Beats me. He beat the, one the next day. Everyone was speculating because yeah. how do you, you know, Remco. Evanapool is in the top 5% of the race. Mm. Has to be. And so even on a heli stage, like if he's going to drop, he needs to be in the last 10 standing before he drops off. Not the yeah. last 60. Then he becomes the 59th person to peel off the back of the group mm. on the first climb of the day. That's mm. not a bad day. That's that's like an implosion. Yes, which I find bizarre. I mean, everybody says well, every player, every rider has a bad day, but not no, to but that the extent. I agree with you. The yeah. variance between a good and a bad day is 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 ninety nine point nine percent on my good day, and then sometimes you see like a Vinegar time trial, you're hundred percent, and on a bad day they're at ninety eight point two percent. You know yeah. what I mean? The variation is not that big mm. unless there's a problem and. There's just something that to that. Early. There's something else to that story that I can't put my finger on. And my, there's a side of me that thinks there's a mental issue there. He was having a bad day mentally. Well, uh, there's maybe no there doubt. Was, I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm purely guessing. But there's more to that story than just having a bad day. Look, there's no doubt that once he once once he's gapped, he shuts it off mm. because he says, "I don't want to come. I don't want to come eight nine minutes down. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather come thirty third and lose 35 minutes and here win the stage the and win day. a couple more stages and he tried yesterday on the Angleroo also yeah. and, he, and he won and the day two days before that the rest of mmm. so, so the 27 minutes is a little bit fake it's an artificial gap yeah he wouldn't have been that far but, behind, but the, yeah. the key is the timing of the dropping like that's physiologically a guy that ability who can you know you know can ride six watts six, six mm. and a half watts for 40 minutes mm. they wouldn't have been going five and a half six watts there so mm. he's 
so, so that does suggest I don't know mental. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. So and it's a shame, like that. This whole thing. We'll no, probably never know because no, nobody's saying anything. No one's asking and no one's yeah. telling. And similarly, like it's such a shame because if this hadn't happened with Yumbo, and if it had gone to script, Chris would have finished, as I say, somewhere in the top ten, like in the tour. Mm. Heroic for guiding all three Grand Tour winners. Super domestique. Mm. The story might have been we could have sat in this podcast and discussed the physiology of doing three grand tours and recovering in between. If Vinegar wins the race, and he might yet, by the time you listen to this, you'll know how it played out. Mm. Uh, you'll be talking about what it takes to recover from the Tour de France and then retrain enough into the Vuelta, which is a really interesting physiological challenge. Mm. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm. all everyone's talking about is the ethics of letting your teammate win or not. It's a yeah. joke. It's, it's yeah. so frustrating. <laughs> Anyway, so let us know what you think about that. It's certainly a very uh, passionate uh, topic on our, on the various channels in cycling. Anyway, let's move on to a subject which, of course, Ross has been very close to in the last week or so, being over at the World Cup in France. And uh, one of the interesting things, and we were having a discussion before we went on air with this podcast today, and I'm, I'm going to kind of let Ross take the reins on this because... You've been inspecting some of the protocols, some of the systems in place, particularly around players' safety and welfare and that sort of things. But one of the interesting ones I like to explain is is the actual detail yeah. and the 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 framework and the logistics and the technology around watching for players in the game who might be suffering from concussions. And this is a fascinating thing that I never knew. Yeah. So. I was over there now for the first week and weekend. We had a few meetings in the week leading up to the opening weekend and then also met with all the team doctors and the match day medical doctors. And like first point is you'd be astounded at the size of the medical infrastructure to make a tournament like this happen. There are mm. over 400 doctors in service in France right now to rugby teams. Wow. So, for instance, in Bordeaux alone, and I only know Bordeaux because <laughs> I know the doctor from there, there are 65 doctors on standby and serving teams that are based in and around Bordeaux between matches. That's just between games. And that's things like optom- optometrists, ophthalmologists, uh, gastrointestinal surgeons and experts, uh, gynecologists, because the partners are there. <laughs> so, and these guys are all been like seconded almost into service. So they're not exclusively, but they're all on standby. They're not There's team a, doctors. No, they're not team doctors. They're, they're local doctors yeah. and experts and specialists who said, I will be available and on call for any emergencies or requests from teams. Obviously, tons of orthopedic surgeons. Just this morning, we lost a hooker, Malcolm Marks. If you saw that ACL, mm. like that's now being served and, and supported by French medical infrastructure because there's a setup for that to happen. It's really it's mind-boggling. There's a there's basically a telephone thickness <laughs> book wow. of, of all these people who are involved. And then the match day infrastructure is also remarkable. You there's there's what they call emergency extraction teams in case of a spinal injury on the field, and these are highly trained medical staff, paramedics, doctors, nurses who are trained to get people off after that kind of injury quickly. There's teams on the sideline for cardiac issues, defibrillators. There are, there's a trauma center in every stadium where they can mm. do minor surgeries and emergency surgeries. There's an x-ray room in every stadium to do initial mm. x-rays and scans of things. And it's rugby's un- a pretty safe sport. Un- it's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we were looking at all that infrastructure in the lead-up. But the main focus, of course, is on the concussions. Now, anyone listening to this who's even got a passing interest in sport will understand that contact sport has a concussion issue to deal with rugby Mm. no different they've all got lawsuits facing them and for the last 12 15 years there's been an increased and ever improving focus on concussion one of the key things is when a player is concussed you have to get him off the field you can't leave 
possible concussions out there to play because then the risk of second impact and delayed recovery and severe consequences goes up. There's studies showing that as minutes go by after a concussion, the longer you delay removal, the worse the situation becomes. So the process by which you do that has evolved. It used to just be like wait for a player to get knocked out. You know, that was rudimentary like back in decades ago. Mm. But now, okay, now we recognize that the concussion presents different ways. Sometimes it doesn't present obviously at all. And you have to have eyes on the field to identify and then remove the player. And that's what the whole infrastructure has been developed for. And so you now have team doctors who are looking. The ref obviously is looking. Then there's a match day medical doctor on the side of the field who's looking in support or supported by someone from Hawkeye. That's the camera company mm-hmm. who sits with an iPad and has access to 22 different, at least this is what the Hawkeye person told me. I've subsequently seen 15, but I think they've got additional camera angles and they're constantly looking for a player who goes into contact and doesn't look right afterwards. What are we looking for? Loss of balance, a little bit of disorientation, but ataxia, a convulsion maybe, a little sidestep when he didn't mean to sidestep. You know, and like the people watching sign. for that are doctors. Yeah, they're medical doctors. Uh, and they're, they're there. And, and so that's on the side of the field. That's match day doctor one. Mm-hmm. He's responsible for, he or she is responsible for everything that's going on off the field. The team doctor is responsible for the players on the field. But he's watching and they're looking. She's looking always for who's showing signs. Then there's a second match day doctor who's the video doctor sitting in a room just off the tunnel. Also, in, also supported by Hawkeye operators. And that's like a little TV bank. There's three TV screens, one showing the game, one showing a split screen of different camera angles. And then there's another one where you can have 12 camera angles at the same time. <laughs> and they're looking and they're saying, okay, I've just seen blue six. That looked like a significant head impact. Can I have a replay of that, please? And then they look over, <laughs> communicating with one another so that the video doctor is telling the match day doctor, I'm looking at blue six, you carry on watching other things. Cool. And say, okay, I need to see the reverse angle. The Hawkeye operator pulls up the reverse saying, okay, slow that down. Okay, I can see a significant head impact. Now pan out. I want to see the wide angle. I want to see how the player recovers because what happens in the five to 15 seconds after that impact often reveals the concussion. So now you look at the wide shots and you see the player get up and he walks back. Okay, looks normal. Keep an eye on blue six because there was an impact. We just keep, keep monitoring that. If he doesn't look quite right, blue six needs to be checked, please. And then that message goes to the match day doctor. The match day doctor calls the team doctor over. On the iPad, now we check exactly what's going on. The team doctor agrees, get the player off, now he goes for a screen. So it really the is. The screen like being the HIA, in other words, he does the yeah. head impact assessment. Yeah, so then if that happens, the, there's 12 minutes, 12 minute clock starts, and the player's not allowed back on until that clock's elapsed, but that's the time to do the test. Off the, off the field, down the tunnel. There's an HIA room just off to the left in Stade de France. It was to the right, okay? But in, in Saint-Étienne, where I was also, it was to the left. The, the match day doctor and the team doctor go together. They check the video on the way to the HIA room because that room's right there. And they say, okay, let's have a look. Okay, I see the head impact. Okay, the, the, that's actually a clear sign of a concussion. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes the video shows a clear concussion. Then there's no screen. You don't even need it because he's off. He's done. It's immediate and permanent removal. We call that a criteria one. Where the player well, doesn't give an example. In other words, somebody hits their, knocks out colds. That's the obvious one. All right. Suspected okay. loss of consciousness. Much less obvious because now what happens is a player goes down. He lies motionless for two or three seconds. But like maybe that's normal, right? Because A, he's stunned. 
bees under a pile of bodies. <laughs> it's sometimes really difficult. Mm. And in fact, you'd be surprised at how difficult it sometimes is, even among doctors, to get agreements on whether they've seen a loss of consciousness. Mm. Uh, ataxia, which is basically a loss of motor function, that's like a being being punched and then you see a guy staggers. Same thing sometimes on a rugby field. You see a guy get up and he takes one step and then he takes like a stumble off into one direction on the side. That's an ataxia. Uh, tonic posturing is where a player goes down and then their arms sort of go up into what's called the fencing position. It's quite a scary looking thing actually to see oh, live. Yeah. Have you seen that before? Never. But yeah, maybe, uh, maybe you'll see it now. Hopefully not. All of those are signs which we call criteria one signs in rugby and there's a few other sports rugby league. And if they are seen, it's players off immediately. There's no, there's no screen. And so they look for that initially on the video. If, if there's doubt, they look for that. Otherwise, they just don't even look. I mean, you know, you've seen it on the field live. You mm. don't need a video. <laughs> if they can't see anything like that, then the player continues on to the HIA screen. And that's symptoms. It's cognitive function. It's a balance check. And the player's performance in that test is, is assessed relative to a baseline that was determined before the tournament. And if he underperforms, so for instance, balance errors, more symptoms, more, more cognitive mistakes than normal, then it's a positive screen result and he stays off the field. And so that's how the process works. Hmm. If he fails, if he passes all those tests, then he's, he's cleared to return to play. Just in terms of the logistics, so let's say, for instance, this, the guy's looking at the video content in this room. They say, we want number six to be screened. Do they, is it a case of they will go to the team doctor? The team doctor will then say, okay, we, we're now going to have to replace a player. And therefore, they put up the board, the player comes off. Mm. Is, that, is that the protocol of it? No, they don't even put up a board because it's just a delay. It's an unnecessary delay. So what happens is the team doctor just informs the fourth official who's standing right there on the side of the field. It's the guy who holds up the board, but they don't need to go through that formality. Okay. I mean, there's no there's no board in rugby anyway. It's a football thing. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, yes. Yeah. But basically, yeah. they, they just inform the team doctor, our blue six, we'll pick on blue six again. Mm-hmm. Uh, blue six is coming off an HIA. And then they say, cool, no problem. And in the meantime, Blue 21 runs on the field to take his place. Blue 6 is like, what do you mean? And then Blue 6 is, yeah, yeah sometimes like, yeah. I'm fine. What's the yeah. problem? Yeah. Yeah, that'll sometimes happen. Or they'll tell the fourth official Blue 6 is off as a criteria one. And then Blue 21 comes on as a permanent replacement. And so that all gets that all gets tracked and monitored and managed on the side of the field. The side of the field, it's it's like a proper operation. It's, it's, it's organized chaos, but it, it's... It's really fascinating to see it in action and how it's run. And it's it's confusing. Eh? Like sometimes you would not, I mean, I'll give you the one example is your call comes in, there's a blood injury, you need to check for head impact. Because when there's a blood injury, you're looking for head contact, right? Because now the guy's bleeding from his cuts mm. above his eyebrow. That's probably a significant head impact. Yeah. Okay. So we look, okay, all right, fine. Who, who is it? Okay. We know blue six has come off for a blood injury. I'm going to stick with blue six because why not? So pull Blue 6 off. Uh, well, they don't pull him off, but now you go to the video screens and you're working with a Hawkeye and your matched video doctor. You're saying, can we see Blue 6 at the last few phases? Can we? F- no sign of anything. Then the call comes in. It wasn't Blue 6. It was White 5. Oh, cranky. Mm, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cancel that. Now let's find me White 5. Oh, okay. Now we eventually found where the incident is. And now you're looking for that sign. And it's... Remember, this is all happening and the game's continuing. <laughs> They're not waiting for, for mm. this to happen. So it, it's, an, it's pretty intense. And the training that goes into getting those match day doctors and those Hawkeye operators prepared for this is, is it's pretty impressive. And my, my initial instinct around this, and I do apologize for my views on this because they're probably controversial, it feels like a bit of overkill. 
because mm. there isn't there is a, there surely there is an accepted risk in a game like rugby as there is with any contact sport. Therefore, when you when a player is potentially concussed, an obvious concussion therefore needs to be assessed, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as an HIA. Mm. But it feels like that that the amount of money, technology, all that sort of thing being used to just see if somebody may be concussed feels yeah. like an overkill. So what's driving this what is driving this need to be constantly vigilant of a potentially <laughs> of a potentially yeah. concussed player? Because it does feel like, well, do they really need to do that? Yeah, I suppose the what's driving it is the however small the risk of the worst case thing happening. In other words, somebody dying or permanently disabled. Yeah. yeah. Someone being killed because of a second impact. You know, a concussed player remaining on the field and then receiving a second knock. And there have been some of the sport's biggest controversies have been missed concussions. You know, there was a Welsh player, George North. There was an Australian player, Smith. Sonny Bill Williams, I think, was one that I remember. And they, they make big news headlines, you know, like World Rugby Culpable or whoever it is. It's the Australian doctor, the New Zealand doctor, the Welsh medical staff for missing the place of a concussion. And, the, you know, the problem is you've got television now and social media and it'll happen and then the player will be out there and meanwhile the physio is treating another player okay so now we missed it and then the sport has to react to that by saying okay well that could often happen so now we need Mm. a second pair of eyes in the event and that's why you've now got multiple spotters because you want to try and avoid that situation it's an interesting question there because like i speaking for myself now you get so immersed in it did you never actually stop to ask that question of like how much is enough? Well, yes, because I imagine yeah. that the other answer would be that rugby is world rugby is doing its best to reduce culpability. Uh, yeah, to yeah, some extent. Yeah, I think so, and that's, that's that. That's what the pressure is. I mean, and there've been, there have been, con, there have been deaths as a consequence of brain injury when players played on after concussion, not in the elite game, but in the community game. Mm. And it happens, but the chances so the of com- it are very min. Small. Yeah, they are. They are. It, we're dealing here in smallish risks, you know, and that's why a lot of the time and the energy these days in the sport has been spent on the impacts that don't cause concussion, but would might which might accumulate over time and have later in life consequences, which we have discussed in the past. But it's an interesting one to think about the fact that it's a small risk, but if it was realised, it would be a disastrous risk. I mean, it would literally be a fatal risk. And and there is also the reality that if you don't pick it up, even if the player doesn't experience a second impact, their recovery is delayed, their long-term prognosis is worse, they're more likely to suffer another concussion. So you want to get a concussed player off the field as quickly as possible. That's true of any, every injury, by the way. You don't want to have a bloke running around there for another 20 minutes with a hamstring strain because that's going to be a really bad hamstring tear. Mm. So for all of them, it's the case. But I think especially with brain injuries, you want the player to come off. And so the infrastructure that's developed around that is really, really sophisticated and comprehensive, but still doesn't work perfectly. There well, it can't be. because somebody can have a concussion in the middle of a, exactly. of a mall. You'd never see that. And then they get up yeah. 10 seconds after the concussion. Mm. That person could have been knocked out for five seconds. And you would never know. No one would ever know. Yeah. The players sometimes know. Sometimes you'll see the players stop the game because they'll recognize that someone under the pile of bodies is not acting normally or not acting at all. Mm. And they'll say, ref, hang on. But you're right, and that's the that's one of the problems. And, and, and for instance, there'll be a lot of times with really significant head impacts, and we now have this data because we've got these mouth guards, right? Mm. Not in every player. So I just wish. explain those mouth guards? 
So the mouth guard is fitted with a little triaxial accelerometer that measures the movement of the head in different planes. And so now you get measurements of how much the head is accelerated in a contact. And that doesn't have to be direct head contact. That could be me like folding you in half, tackling you at the stomach, but then the, your head whips forward as that happens. Mm. And that causes that can cause a brain injury. Mm. And so now we have these measurements and we have realized that head injuries, and again, I wish we had it on more players. That's certainly the goal to make it more and more widely used. But sometimes a head injury happens when the linear acceleration is say 55 Gs, okay? Other times you'll get a 75 G head acceleration and no clinical indication. But maybe there was, it's just you didn't look and see it at the time. So the mouth guard, the mouth guard might open up possibilities that the human eye can't necessarily see. So that's actually quite exciting because it might it might reduce the infrastructural burden because something objective starts taking over. You just have to be really precise about how you do it. <laughs> Are all those mouth guards then downloaded at yeah, the end so of the game? Is everybody's mouth guard downloaded? Even during the game, if you have a if you have a strong enough sensor and a, and the transmitter is stronger. And one of the tech advances that will happen in the next while is this is that this that it's a Bluetooth synchronization. <laughs> that will improve. And then what eventually will happen is you'll have real time head acceleration data. At the moment, you you definitely get it at half time because everyone's in one room, and that's definitely close enough. But it's a it's a proximity line of sight mm. physical barrier thing that at the moment stops it being in literal real time. But it's it's close enough. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that's a yeah potentially really exciting innovation, and we're working quite hard on that. And I hope soon to be able to like discuss even more. We've actually had the first paper published in the community game. The second one should be imminently published. And I think it could change how we understand certainly head injuries, but even more broadly, head accelerations. Imagine mm. being able to to track over the course of a entire season in a player how many times they've had head accelerations exceeding X, Y, and Z, and then linking that to clinical outcomes, possibly performance. Coaches would find value in it because every head acceleration is a contact. And, mm. you know, like a distance runner measures minutes and miles, maybe a rugby player needs to start measuring contacts and meters, you know. So there's some exciting things in that regard. But yeah, never. I've, it's funny, I've never paused to think about at what point does the, mm. does the supply exceed the demand philosophically. And mm. I'm not, not going to justify doing less and saying, oh, you know what, actually... But but yeah, in theory, but the, 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 the I guess the answer is that down the line, world rugby or anybody in contact sport needs to be able to face the players and say, "We've done everything within our possible means to yeah. make sure that you are safe." Yeah, and what's that, kind what's of, that target? What's that yeah. bar? How high is that bar? But the more you develop, I mean, you could yeah. you could have a you could have a spotter for every player on the field. Yeah, you have, yeah. so you yeah. are appointed. Your job is to watch green yeah. one. Yeah. You watch green two. You watch green. To what extent? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. when do you it stop? It can get to the point of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. But and what you're saying is that maybe at the moment it's already gone over that point. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Kind of makes you feel a bit like that, but I understand the justification yeah. for it. Yeah, but yeah, it seems like a lot for a minuscule chance of an uh, of a of a sport where it's inherent. The danger is inherent. Well, the se- you're the, then creating the, the, a super. T- complex system to negate a relatively small risk. To be clear, the risk of a concussion is <laughs> not minuscule. That that risks, you know, we have, we have one, we'll see how the World Cup goes, we're hoping for a lower number, but mm. the, the, the global elite men's average in the last four or five years is about 18 per thousand hours, which works out to four, let's call it rounded up, four every five matches. So you'll see a concussion okay, among a group of 30 like people. 
four times every five matches that that group of 30 people plays. So the, the risk of a concussion is quite high. So mm. therefore, you, it is the most common injury in the sport now. Yeah, so that justifies the And so it justifies means. wanting to identify it. The reason you want so urgently to get the player off the field is for this much, admittedly much smaller risk of a second impact. Mm. But you still want to pick the injury up. And yeah. this is the problem, by the way, is that a concussion will occur. Mm-hmm. And within literally 10 seconds, you no longer know it had occurred. A muscle strain occurs. You can't hide it. It's going to manifest later. Concussion can go away. And so if you don't, this is, in fact, this is not what I should have said in the beginning. If you don't have all eyes on it and you don't see it at the moment it happens, you could end up underdiagnosing them massively. And then what you'll have is a player the next week and the week after that continuing to play when they actually should have been stood down. So that's, that's actually the main thing is because they are such transient injuries sometimes that yeah. you need eyes on so that you don't miss them. You know, that's how it used to be. Before these spotters, more than half of concussions were playing on. Black would be picked up after the game. Oh, jeez, you're concussed. Mm. Imagine how many more there were happening that no one even knew about because mm. you didn't have the attention on it. Yeah, so you actually, you do have to do it. Otherwise, mm. you'd miss, you'd, you'd undercount them and you wouldn't know what to treat. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that in itself yeah. supports the reasoning yeah. does. Yeah. So it does make sense. I mean, just moving on from that, We've talked a few times in this podcast about the changes in the rugby laws around the new tackle rules, that kind of thing. There has been some controversy at this Rugby World Cup already <laughs> and fairly early on in it where yeah. some players, yeah. there's been a feeling that some players should have been sent off, some haven't, some have got you know, cards and think people should have been given reds and all sorts of things. So <laughs> is there inconsistency in the way that the law has been applied now? I mean. Is it possible it is. not to be inconsistent? Well, I was, I was going to answer your first question by saying, of course there is, because it's human beings mm. making what are fundamentally, to some degree, subjective decisions. Just to, just to take one small step back, what, what then happens, by the way, is that all those head injuries and also all the other suspected ones, you know, like I said, oh, let's look at Blue Six. Okay, we'll clear him, he can, his phone's playing. Those still get filed away in a library. And then one of the one of the tasks I've got in the in this World Cup is to go through that with a team of people, not just me, looking at all those clips. So we will now look at every match. There'll be five to 15 incidents of head impacts from all these different angles. We get all the different Hawker angles to try and look at them, to try and pick up whether anything's been missed. So it relates back to my point, is the fundamental reason that this infrastructure and these people and this personnel exist is to not miss a concussion. And there's a, there are even checks that continue for like days after the game. And that's one of the things we do. And that's to establish no. the success rate of the in-game surveillance. Yeah, that, so that's one of the outcomes for it. The main reason is to, to make sure you haven't missed one. You know, so you want yes, to be able to look back to at the yeah. France-New Zealand game and say, actually, you know what, that, there, was, there was an incident in the, I don't know, make it up, you have 27th minute, and the New Zealand five maybe should have come off for a check. Mm. This is I'm making this up, by the way. Please don't yeah. <laughs> assume I'm saying that Barrett was concussed. <laughs> but maybe should have come off for a check so that we can be absolutely confident at the end of the World Cup in saying that if we had seven criteria ones and 15 criteria twos in this uh, tournament, we are confident that that is the true number. We're not under-reporting. You're creating a, a solid baseline. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, so. For the, it's, for the, it's for the reporting of it, secondary. But the main reason is just that you don't let a player continue and go on in the tournament without picking up that they might have had a concussion. And the reason I brought that up there now is because it, it, it relates back to the, 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 the foul play stuff. Mm. Because there's definitely an issue. Like in the first three, four matches of this tournament, we had massive controversies to the extent that 
sometimes wonder whether a rugby community wants to watch the game or do they want to watch for foul play that might have been missed and then play games of gotcha. Because <laughs> I go on social yes. media and I, what I'm seeing is still shots of one tackle and then this one from Wales, Fiji, this one from South Africa. This should have been, this should I mean, mm. guys, like, I know it matters, but geez, let's not obsess over the, you know. The, well, it's, it's been talked about and there's lots of discussion mm, around the tackle height, for instance. Yeah, big time. Big both time. sides of the coin on that. So exactly. people are... It dominates it. the conversation, yeah. which I think is a, is a little unfortunate. You know, mm-hmm. and I mean, got a piece actually sent to us, one of our patrons, Ian, who's, you know, you know we've got Gareth, who's our chief research officer, <laughs> Ian's chief news reporter, because he, he posts links to the news stuff happening, and then Josh's chief debate protagonist. <laughs> so Ian and Josh got into a nice discussion last week about a case in the AFL, it's Aussie Rules Football, for those who don't know, where a player with a... Well, from what I gathered reading about him, he's got a little bit of a checkered history with concussions. Gets caught in a game and is knocked out cold for two minutes. Okay, so clear concussion, criteria one. Easiest one you'll ever see, right? No, no doctor's going to disagree. But the player who caused the incident is a guy called Braden Maynard. And he gets reported for high contact, which is a sanction, basically. They don't have a red card system like rugby does. And what it ends up doing is it kicks off a debate in the Australian media about the culture of head injuries in their sport. And what you then get is this classic polarization where you get some people saying it's just, they call it a footy incident, mate. <laughs> it's just a, that's footy, you know, deal with it. Yeah. And then the other hand, you say people saying like, this is brain injury and you're just saying it's part of the game. The players must accept it. And as I've said before, I'm sure I said on this podcast, the challenge we've got is well, how do we calibrate the response between those two poles? Mm. Because you can't just dismiss it as a footy incident. It's not... In my opinion, and listeners are free to disagree, if you can change that risk slightly lower without compromising the game, you must. Mm. But in the same sense, you can't change it so much that you actually now start stripping away the meaning of the sport. Yes. And the meaning of rugby is physical contact. Yeah. And we have discussed this. A if few it didn't times. have exactly, so so it's real interesting. And you see some of these, you see some of the quotes in this piece here, and the tribunal hearing that this player eventually goes to, and is cleared by the way. So I don't know how the fallout from that's going. Um, basically the headline this, the first paragraph says the tribunal hearing of this player will test our tribal loyalties governing body football media former champions our understanding of the laws of the game and our definitions of football acts and duty of care so okay I'm laboring getting to the point here the point is the rugby union has taken the approach that every player should have a duty of care towards their opponent and a duty of care means that if you can act in a way that doesn't injure someone then you should <laughs> You can't act and then say, ah, oh, I couldn't have foreseen that coming. So the most obvious example of this is like what caused this Australian football player. It was a kick, an opponent was coming to charge it down, and he jumps and he follows through and he clobbers him on the way through and he knocks him out cold. Watchers of rugby, especially in South Africa, when we played Argentina maybe six months, six weeks to two months ago, in the 10th second of our scrum half's debut game, that's thing happened remember that incident mm-hmm. he kicks the ball from just in front of his own trial and Argentinian player gets a hand on it so he's close enough spins in the air the Argentinian guy's hip hits the South African on the head knocked out cold done game over mm. couple of weeks off he's making his new debut to, uh, for us this weekend against Romania similarly in the Argentina England game there was a yellow card given for a kick charge down that didn't successfully get the ball but hit the player so that's an obvious example where you want to now start saying to players if you're not in a position to viably get that ball, 
and you hit your opponent on the follow-through, then you have not exercised your duty of care. Even if your objective, your primary objective is the ball, you still have to think about the consequence of the way you behave. Does that make sense? Mm. So what, what I would then say, for instance, in that is, I would judge it as, if I'm running directly towards you, Mike, and you've got the ball, and I jump, and I don't get the ball, but I get you, I have acted in a way that is reckless because I didn't need to jump. And if I am going to jump, then I must make sure that my angle takes me away from you so that I jump past you, not into you. That would be how I would frame duty of care in that situation. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff to to think about in, I, in a split second, isn't it? I guess uh, that's so. The problem. But, that's the but, challenge. Okay, so let's take it away from foul play. Like I'm in the back line and I'm defending a move. I'm like, say, I'm either the wing or the outside center. And we've got a little bit of an overlap and I can see that there's an opportunity coming. The pass is going to be thrown and I can go for the interception. Do I go, yes or no? If I go and I succeed, I'm a hero because I'm going to score a try and I'm save a try and score one myself. If I don't make it, and I look like an idiot, I can see the try. But worst case scenario is I get a hand close to the ball, I knock it down, now it's a yellow card and a penalty try. We ask players to make that decision all the time. It's normal. So why not make ask them to make the same decision about how to execute a charge down on a kick? That's my argument, is that they make, they're, they're professional rugby players. They can make these decisions. Well, they have to find a way to automate those decision-making exactly. processes in that time. So right. it's part of potentially training. But I still, that's the the, the, the debate so, about this stuff is because often when I watch a rugby game and I look at sometime an example like an up and under, somebody's chasing down an up and under, yes, they're trying to grab example. it. That's a good example of mm. somebody, both players going high, they're trying to catch the ball. One misses it, goes hits into another player. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Is he, is he being reckless by going for the up and under that he's trying to collect? Or... The, this, I'm talking about the kicker in yeah. this occasion, or is he just trying to get the ball? So the way it's, it sometimes can go that, both ways. It's actually a really good ex- example of this. Is the way rugby unions try to deal with that? It's come up. I've, I've, each, I've spoken to some refs about it. Is they're saying we want there to still be a contest. We don't want to take the choice of a contest away from a player. The fundamental principle of the game is contest for the ball. So you can't say don't contest that. And if you're going to allow one player to contest it, you must allow the other because now it's no, it's no longer rugby otherwise, right? <laughs> it's tennis. Your shot, my shot. It's not like that. Absolutely. So what we, what Rugby Union has said is that if that player goes up for the ball, irrespective of kicker or, or receiver, and they're not in a viable position to actually catch the ball and they cause a player to fall badly, be injured or land on their head or neck or something, then they are liable because they made a decision whose outcome was preventable but it happened because of the decision they made. Does that make sense? Yeah. If that player goes up and they are in a viable con- a position to catch the ball and there's a clash of players in the air and they fall awkwardly and so on, the referee should not penalize those players. And you'll hear them say, fair contest. And then it's fine. It's dealt with. Mm. Now, it's the same, the same logic applied to the tackle would be, in my opinion, as follows. is If I'm making a tackle on a player... I'm taking a risk because I'm trying to hit as hard as I can and I'm trying to tackle, let's say, a point around the sternum. So I want to dominate that. I want to hit on the ball so you can't offload it and so on. So I'm going to make that a tackle attempt. But if I'm reckless in my speed, my approach, my angle, and something changes in that tackle dynamic and I hit your head as a consequence, then I'm liable for the the outcome that I've caused through my decision to do that thing. Mm. I've almost, in a sense, failed in my duty of care. So what's the solution is I need to tackle lower than your sternum. I need to go below it. I need to go maybe for your belly button instead because that allows me 
to have a margin of error that will not hit your head when you drop by 30 centimeters suddenly as you change direction or my teammate tackles you. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's the cultural challenge that all the contact sports have. And it's highlighted by this piece from the AFL where they've taken one approach to it, the fan community, and then rugby union. And I do sometimes feel like we've, we've cast a spotlight on these issues by trying to eradicate, not eradicate, we're trying to reduce the risk of concussion. And we've created for ourselves a new problem, which is controversy around decision-making, uh, the red car referee decisions and sanctions, you know? So it's not a great position to be in, but I think it's that calibration, and I do think it's necessary. I mean, you've done some, and obviously, just to give it some context, the whole decisions around the, the tackle rule and that sort of thing is based on research that you've done many, yeah. many years ago that's now resulted in these law changes and that sort of thing. So the evidence around what causes these concussions is is fairly, well, is now yeah. researched and, and, I th- and proven. I, th- I think so, yeah. And yeah. the context was, I started World Rugby in 2015, and the very first question is, We've now figured out, well, not figured out, not perfect by any means, but we've got a system in place to identify concussion. I spoke about that already on this podcast, managing a concussion, return to play. But now let's talk prevention, yeah, being better than cure and all. Let's, how do we prevent a concussion? Well, step one is what causes a concussion? Yeah. What are the behaviors and the characteristics of players when a concussion happens compared to when it doesn't? It's not rocket science to know that. Well, when was that research done that you did? That was, that, that was, the, that was the topic, in, wasn't it? Yeah, it started in mid-2015 mid the, the analysis was done by early 2016 by middle of 16 we had it all done and then in September 2016 it was presented to a group of coaches former players uh, current and former referees so it was a pretty high-powered group maybe a smaller group than in hindsight would have been good but it was a group convened specifically to look at this I we spent two days with them and said okay these are the risk factors dominance tackles you know because you can tackle into someone or you can soak tackle passively obviously dominant tackle more likely to cause injury Mm. makes sense (laughs) speed high speed more likely than low speed if I accelerate into the ball carrier it's more likely to cause a concussion uh head contact with heads shoulders elbows and knees so the bony bits if you want safer tackles, you put the head near the torso, the hips, and the upper legs because it's a softer target area. So that's also obvious. Mm. And then body position. If the tackler was upright, then the risk of a concussion was higher for both players. I don't know why you spent so much time doing the research because I probably could have told you that before. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's the case. It's fairly much, logic, isn't it? But that's I suppose you have to prove research. it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so the, 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 the most counterintuitive <laughs> of all was that um, – Higher contact was more likely to cause concussions than lower mm. contact, even in the tackler. And when I say counterintuitive, I mean, we then presented it. Okay, the, the expert group of coaches in 2016 took that advice and they said, all right, you're not going to slow the player down. You're not going to take away their desire to dominate contact. Then it's not rugby anymore, so forget it. The thing you need to do first is lower the height of the tackle. Because that's the one thing you can control. The, I thought that was the low-hanging fruit almost. Mm. It turns out mm. it's not so low after all. <laughs> Just look lower, not low. Mm. And so and so we say, okay, well, how do we do that? Do we literally change the law, make it lower? And they said, no, they don't think at this stage because there's, there's habits and it's ingrained and it'll probably take a few generations. And so let's start with something a bit subtler and that's sanction high tackles more severely so that the, the risk-reward balance is changed. So no longer is a player going to go high because now if I get that wrong, it's more severely punished, therefore nudge it down. It, the intention was to nudge, not bludgeon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's okay, we're going to sanction them more. 
And then when that, when that was rolled out, the, like you won't believe how many coaches rejected the premise that higher contact was worse than lower contact. And so while you say it was obvious research, and some of it is actually obvious research, we, we international level, some of the greatest coaches that people think exist on this planet, and they are, <laughs> they said, no way, mate, hips are far more dangerous than heads. I see way more concussions from the hips and the knees than I do from the head. And we mm-hmm. said, okay, I get that, but that's because that's where all the tackles are. Which you, so, so there was a fundamental, like in the beginning, misunderstanding of how you assess risk. You don't count how many you see. So it's not quite as obvious as you think it no, is. No, it's not quite. That mm. part wasn't. I think the speed mm. and the tackle type was pretty obvious, you know. Yeah. But that yeah. part was not. And that was the first big challenge was to try and get across the line. This idea that you can count. If you, can, if you watched 100 concussions, yes, yeah, 65 of them are head hip. But that's because out of every 100 tackles, 80 of them are head hip. Mm. It's a 10 that went head head and seven of them caused a concussion. So you don't, it's the same as with cars and motorbikes, like far more car accidents than motorbike accidents. But that's because yes. there's 25 cars for every motorbike. Obviously, you're going to see more accidents. The thing you want to ask is what percentage, yeah. what proportion. So we call that propensity. And so for mm. the first six months, like it was a real challenge to get across the line in the, in the community, this idea that actually this is where the risk is higher. And in that study, we had 464 head injuries in the tackle. It's 611 in total because you get some in rucks and malls and kick contests and line outs very, very rarely in those set pieces. We since, because we were <laughs> under so much pressure to confirm this, we followed it up with a study of 200, then another study in 230 then a study in women of 160 odd so we now have over 900 head injuries Mm. that we've compared to 9,000 tackles and Mm. the picture is pretty consistent and then it was repeated in rugby league Mm. so overall it's it's pretty clear now that you want players tackling low the safer situation is that the tackler's head is near the torso of the ball carrier it's a soft part because that way if I miss you left right I hit your soft stomach Mm. (laughs) and even if you're Got the most carved six. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Even if you got the most carved six pack in the world playing in the New Zealand back three, it's still softer than your elbow yeah. and your shoulder and your yeah. head. No. And secondly, bad. secondly, you can't hit the ball carrier's head if I target the stomach. Doesn't mm. matter what the ball carrier does. That's your margin for error is larger. Mm. And so you want to you want to try and nudge the height of the tackle, not down to the knees. You don't want guys chopping in at the kneecaps. I mean, that's a, that's mm. other injuries as well, right? Mm. But you wanted to nudge it down. And so we said sanctions the way to do it. And then you discover that you can show 100 people 100 clips and they only agree one in 15% times, you know, 6% agreements or something. Mm. So you say, okay, now we've got to help people understand what's red cardable. And that's been the challenge for the last three or four years, more actually, five or six years. Because first there was a high tackle sanction framework that sort of broke down what looks da- what is danger like what constitutes high danger versus low danger what constitutes mitigation versus no mitigation if it drops suddenly define suddenly mm-hmm. you know what how do you how do you make that that distinction it's a subjective decision right mm-hmm. so we provided that tool sort of worked improved a little bit now it's called the hcp head contact process and i'll tell you that there is a extensive process like every month group of these expert coaches, players, match officials, match uh, judicial officers, lawyers, sit and watch dozens of clips and agree that's a red card because, yes, there's head contact. Yes, it's foul play. Yes, it's high in danger and no mitigation shouldn't be applied. But clip two, same scenario, except this one should have mitigation because the, the other tackler 
dropped his height quickly enough and he couldn't make the adjustment. Mm. So they go through this process like really, really thoroughly, but then it's still never going to be perfect, right? Mm. And so the process is, is there head contact, yes or no? Is there foul play, yes or no? Is it high or low danger? And is there mitigation? And every single one of those, there's wiggle room. Mm. So Jesse Creel tackles the Scottish six, I think it was, or eight, I forget now. And the Twitter goes into a frenzy because they say, clear head contact. <laughs> the way it's emerged subsequently, and I don't know this because I wasn't on this calls, is they looked at 15 different angles. They couldn't see clear head contact. Mm. The camera angle on television seemed to show it, but like it's, it's almost like if those two blokes hadn't shaved that morning, they would have caused a friction fire. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a very slight glance. Mm. But not enough to act on a on a red card. If if Jesse Creel was three centimeters to his left and the Scott three, then it would have been flush head contact and almost certainly you would have been in the head contact process then. Mm. But that's the first step. Was there head contact? And people disagree. Second step, is it foul play? The Sam Curry one, which is against Argentina, people said he had no possible option of not making that tackle it was the player caught the ball and ran it shouldn't even be foul play so there we see a dispute where it's a foul player versus not foul play <laughs> that doesn't even now you're not even on the most complicated bits yet because now you've got to decide on that de- degree of danger then you have to decide on mitigation so so i get that people want perfection but it's not going to happen mm. and it's tough because yes i wish because and again i'm not i'm not judicial right like my job's player welfare mm. but we recognize that this this law change thing is a tool to try and achieve a player welfare change. Yeah. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily always working very well. And it's causing a lot of controversy because I don't think people understand how complicated it sometimes is. But, yeah. We're running out of time, but I, I just want to just well, throw one. Another, we've got another one on rugby coming oh, up soon. So bank the, questions, but the, throw one last questions. one. One last one here. You, there's a little bit of a ch- chat about the, the, the old bomb squad. South Africa did yeah, this yeah. in 2019. Mm. They bring on a fresh set of forwards and, you know, now this percentage of these, all these forwards come on the field and they've obviously changed the game. South Africa almost mastered this bomb squad. Probably the reason why they lost won many of their games. It seems to be part of the game now across mm. many teams but there has been some talk about the fact that it's adding to the danger because suddenly yeah. bringing in eight or six or seven or you know, yeah, most of the times yeah. are six forwards, uh, brand new forwards onto the game yeah. against players that are other other players that are fatigued and therefore you're increasing the risk of injury because now you've got strong players against yeah strong, players, strong, strong explosive, fresh, powerful guys against yeah. fatigued players. Mm. And so it's it's interesting. Like I remember the the, the arguments around the substitutes causing injury precedes the bomb squad. Mm. It was amplified by the bomb squad. And <laughs> in hindsight, if it was up to me, I would never have named it the bomb squad. Mm. That was a South African team thing. They called it themselves, you know, and call, call it the candy floss cotton squad or something rather. <laughs> but anyway, they didn't. They said bomb squad, and it it poured fuel on fire. The fire had been lit earlier than that, and I remember every every quarter World Rugby would get these proposals and suggestions that we should cut the number of substitutes down. At the moment, it's eight, and they're saying, let's have three subs. Some people say no subs, just let them play. No, that's not going to work, because the moment, for instance, in rugby, someone in the front row gets injured, you can no longer have a scrum. So if you, your, your injuries would remove a fundamental part of the game. So you've, mm. got, a, you've got a conflict or a, a constraint, as it were, there, right? But the interesting thing about the subs is people will say, okay, fresh players come on, and for a few different reasons, that's going to increase the risk of injury. The one is what you said. It's the obvious one. Fresh guys, fatigued guys, power against fatigue, injury to fatigue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second one is 
that as players need to be conditioned for only 20, 30 minutes because they're on the bomb squad, you can condition them to be more powerful than they would need to be for 80 minutes. That, for me, doesn't work because next week, the guy on the bomb squad needs to start. That's yeah. happened now. You know, we had Bongi Manambi. Now Malcolm Marks is injured. Bongi now no longer has to play 20 minutes. He's got to play 80. Mm. So if you've only conditioned him for 20 minutes, you're stuffed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> He's stuffed and you're stuffed. Mm. So it'd be stupid tactically to try and do that. Mm. So, so it's not like American football where you know you can have a squad that only plays and you never need to play more. Mm. And then the third thing they say is that over time it would make players smaller because if you have to play for 80 minutes, you're an endurance athlete, whereas if you've got to play for shorter, you're a power athlete. So you would essentially evolve from a 100-meter sprinter into a 1,500-meter runner and smaller, quicker guys, more mobile, but not as powerful. Yeah? Yeah. So, so it's a tricky one, right? Because there's a lot of nuance in this. And the main reason for the nuance is that people who argue subs should be cut are arguing it from the perspective that the injury risk is caused by an imbalance of power against fatigue. But on the other side of the coin, and, and in fact, not just even the imbalance, just the power. The, it's, they're saying it's the power in the game that's causing the injuries. The other side of the debate is the argument that actually fatigue is a major risk factor. Because as you're fatigued, few things happen. Number one is your decision-making is impaired. You make worse decisions. You put yourself in compromised positions. Number two is your tackle technique is compromised. You can't get your fit, foot placement, your shoulder placement, your eyes in the right place. You're more likely to hit heads. And the third reason is that fatigued muscles are less stable and the joints around those are less likely to be stabilized. And so your neuromuscular control is compromised as well. So that for those three reasons, makes sense, right? That you're going to have fatigue as a risk factor. The problem now is no one knows the relative contribution of fatigue on the one hand and power and explosiveness on the other hand. And until you know which of those two factors is the predominant one, you can't make the call to cut the substitute number because you might end up causing exactly the thing you're trying to solve. Yeah. And so what we did is we said, all right, the only way to look at this, you can start globally. You can say, are there more injuries at the end of a game than the start? But that doesn't really help, right? Because by the end of the game, half the players on the field are, fat are fatigued and half of them are fresh because they've just come on in the last 20 minutes. So if you found more injuries at the end, what would it actually mean? You've got to mine it in a bit more detail, right? So we say, right, in collaboration with England Rugby, because they've got a really good injury surveillance system and good video footage, we can find hundreds of injuries and we can identify who's injured and who's the injurer. <laughs> injury, injurer. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And we can say, was the player who was injured, fresh or fatigued, starter versus replacement? And was the player who caused the injury fresh or fatigued, replacement versus starter? And we can work out the relative risk. And I've actually got the data on that. And I shared this on a video to the patrons the other day. So that's another reason to sign up. You get stuff like that. When you have a tackle event, a ball carrier and a tackler making contact with one another, and both those players are fatigued, the risk of an injury in the event is 20% higher than when both are fresh. And by fresh, I mean less than 40 minutes played. Fatigued, I mean more than 60. Yes. Again, so that's the, fairly logical. Though, the, isn't it? Yes. So yeah. that establishes the relative risk when fatigue exists in both players. If you have fatigued versus fresh, the risk is not higher. It's the same as when two fresh players tackle one another. So that's interesting because now that theory about fresh players and fatigued players increases the risk right. of injury, gone. 
It's not higher. The risk is 0.94. So now it's 6% lower than it is when two fresh players tackle one another. And when you have a fresh tackler and a fatigued ball carrier, it's 1.01. So it's 1% higher. It's the same. Mm -hmm. So an imbalance doesn't increase the overall risk in a tackle event. But, and here's the nuance, within that similar overall risk of a tackle event causing injury, the relatively fresh player has a much lower risk and the relatively fatigued player has a much larger risk. So if you if you imagine a tackle event, a tackler ball carrier as a dance, you know, you've got two, two yeah. interacting bodies. Mm -hmm. The overall dance has the same risk, but we allocate the risk differently. The fresh player has less of it and the fatigued player has more of it. And if you swap the role so that the tackler is fatigued and the ball carrier is fresh, it tilts the other way. So you move it around, but the end result is the same. Mm -hmm. So now the question is, do you want to protect one player in a relationship in a dance or do you want to collect, protect the dance? And the sports are the sports having to say we want to look after the dance. Mm -hmm. Because if we didn't have any subs at all, injury risk would go up by 20% in the mm. tackle because they'd all be fatigued. And that's worse than one fresh and one fatigued. Just not for the fatigued player. So what you if you're the player and you're listening to you saying, like, sub me, <laughs> I yeah. want to go more. Yeah. <laughs> I don't Makes want to sense. be the fatigued guy yeah. in that dance. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because it's slightly counterintuitive. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, I wouldn't have thought it was that way around. So yeah. there we go. And it's the yeah. same. Look, what I've done there is I've said fatigue versus replacement, uh, mm. versus freshness, and I've defined fatigue as mm. more than 60 minutes and fresh versus like less than one half of rugby, 40 minutes. It's the same if you do the more simplistic thing of saying two starters, you make mm. the risk equal to one. One replacement, the risk is 0.9, so it drops. Two replacements, the risk is 0.76, it drops even more. Yeah. So as you add freshness to the tackle dance, mm. the overall risk goes down. But the risk to the fresher player is the thing driving the drop. The fatigue player carries more of it. So you move it around, mm. but overall, it's mm. safer when they're fresher. There you go. There you go. So tomorrow, uh, well, not for those of you listening, but our next podcast, which you'll be listening to, is a very special uh, interview we got with one of uh, South Africa's and probably one of the world's uh, best rugby coaches. Is we're going to be asking him all those interesting questions that I've always wanted to ask about rugby, and that will be our next podcast. So keep an eye out for that. So, but for now, it's a goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.